According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth will come through the scriptures as always. Join me this morning in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we have a new chapter to move on to. New episode in the uh, Life of Christ series, The Last Judean and Perean Ministry of Jesus, episode number 14. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. We'll see if uh, the laptop wants to log on this morning. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. All right, Luke chapter 13. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who were reporting to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It goes on from there in verse 6 to uh, teach a parable of the fig tree, and we'll get to that here momentarily. Our episode, though, episode 14, uh, is limited to verses 1 through 5, and so that's what we will undertake today. All right, looks like we're booting. Looks like my mouse might even decide to work. There we go. I haven't turned the projector on yet. That'll probably cause everything to blow up. That's all right. Well, we'll see. Jesus never used PowerPoint, so he never had a laptop either. All right. I do need a cup of coffee, though. Could someone? Okay, thank you, Doug. Appreciate that. All right, looks like this may work. Wrong slideshow, but other than that, this should work. Let's go ahead and pray. Maybe we can bring up the right slideshow. There we go. Repent or perish. As soon as you make a choice, uh, how about if we repent? How about that? Change our attitude. Adjust our thinking to his thinking. It's uh, a command, and yet, can you obey it once and say you're done? Or do you spend the rest of your life continuously adjusting, modifying, growing, maintaining an attitude consistent with the will of God? And being shown day by day, week by week, year by year. Thank you so much. Being shown where your thinking needs to be brought in conformity to his thinking. And so repentance, uh, you can't just say, is a one-time only deal. In any event, this is what we'll address here today. Let's start with prayer and then uh, get right to our study, shall we pray?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Thank you for the uh, the health, uh, the restoration of my voice to assemble this morning, Father, and for the reminders that uh, this very gathering is a grace provision. We have not earned it, have not deserved it. Certainly, Father, we have no uh, claim of, of entitlement. Who are we to be privileged to be instruments and tools in your hands to be able to even study and, and teach the Word of God. We thank you for it. Thank you for the voice that you have supplied in order to communicate on this day. And we count it as a grace provision and one for which you receive all the, all the glory. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's look at it again. On the same occasion, meaning that uh, really um, it's an awkward spot for a chapter break. Don't you think? <laughs> uh, since the content of chapter 13 just ties right in with what was going on in chapter 12. And yet being 59 verses long, I imagine they decided, you know, this chapter is long enough. We've got to break it somewhere. <laughs> kind of a thing. Uh, of course, chapter divisions are not in the original text and not a part of the, uh, the, uh, the book itself, at least as far as they, they're not God-breathed and inspired, we should say. They were put into place uh, in subsequent centuries. And uh, so let's back up a little bit and remind ourselves there were 10 emphases in chapter 12. And of those emphases, really, we can take the last one, obviously, two clearly, and maybe even three that uh, tie in immediately to the subject that we're going to deal with here in this chapter. And so that's what I give you in the first point of study on the same occasion. What occasion is that? Point one, on the occasion of these emphases, and there were ten total, uh, but I would say especially the final two, there was an emphasis on perception and there was an emphasis on reconciliation. The last two, emphasis nine and emphasis ten in our chapter 12 outline, because those uh, lessons particularly are addressed in this rebuke here. This is a, a clear rebuke. This is an or else message. Repent or perish. And it is left in their volition to adjust their thinking or face the consequences. And there's no wiggle room on those consequences. On the occasion of these emphases, and you note that it's especially the perception emphasis and the reconciliation emphasis. Certain ones, not all of them, but certain ones. Certain ones present chose to notify Jesus concerning a political atrocity. Concerning a political atrocity. That's how I'm labeling it. You could probably describe it in other terms. You know, but when the power of government is brought to bear in order to bring about a massacre or the death of civilians, what, uh, what is that? See, similar to what we're watching now in the news going on in, in uh, Iran at the moment. And uh, the fraudulent elections, they've been fraudulent for 30 years. But uh, this time around, they were so blatantly, obviously fraudulent that uh, it's got some folks upset. And so they're uh, expressing that. And they're not just upset over phony elections. They're actually expressing the fact that they're, uh, they're not doing well under this theocracy, the Muslim theocracy. And they haven't been for quite some time. And so what are we observing? We're observing a political atrocity. We're observing a government, governmental authority that's being brought to bear to bring civilian people to death. 
And that's uh, similar to what our context is for this passage. Uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had Galileans put to death. He mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. And uh, interesting expressions. Some of this is uh, idiomatic. Some of this is actually language consistent with the language of Judaism in terms of mingling the blood. There's, uh, there's a lot of language work to be done in this chapter. But I don't think we're far off by calling it a political atrocity. Other ways you might want to describe it, but this is the term I'm going to go with in this study. So on the occasion of these emphases, remember, what was the emphasis on perception? When you back up to uh, verse 54, uh, where he was talking about how they can uh, make observations in terms of the weather and try to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, based on how the sky appears the night before or uh, how the sky appears in the morning or the direction of the wind and different things like that. If you're going to be a weather forecaster, that's all fine and dandy. But why are you not uh, a forecaster in terms of understanding the signs of the times? As it says, uh, he calls them hypocrites in verse 56. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not analyze the present time? We should be students of history. We should be students dispensationally to understand where we are in the outworking of God's plan of the ages. It's why it's important that we have the Alpha to Omega overview. It's why it's important we understand the course of the church age, where we are. You know, and if you can't totally spell out all the details of the dispensation of the Gentiles or the dispensation of Israel and all of that, okay, well, then do more study, do more work. Uh, but you ought to at least understand where you are in the body of Christ. What are we doing now in the church? What is our current stewardship? What are we expected to do? as aliens and strangers? What is our function uh, as ambassadors for Christ? Are we trying to promote a theocracy on earth? Are we trying to defend a Christian nation to conquer the world and usher in the kingdom and hand it to Jesus when he comes? There's lots of folks who are doing just that, or trying to. But if we have a clear understanding of who we are, where we are, and what we're doing, in other words, if we are making application of verse 56 if we are analyzing this present time, biblically, dispensationally, with a sound hermeneutic, we uh, are on solid ground. And we're, we're not subject to the hypocrite charge there. So that's part of the background now for the message in chapter 13, because it's on this occasion. Jesus is starting to speak to them about current events. And they want to act like, oh, yeah, we're aware of current events. We're politically hip and savvy and we know all these things. And by the way, Jesus, did you know about this massacre that Pilate, uh, you know, uh, he put these Galileans to death? You might not be aware of what's going on in Jerusalem since you've been kind of out of touch. You've been traveling Galilee and all those other backwater places. You you uh, crossed the Sea of Galilee and you went over there to Decapolis, or you're up there on the uh, the, the northern regions of of the Sea of Galilee. Or for a while you even went out to uh, the uh, coast regions there, or a Syrophoenician region, and you haven't really been uh, you've been missing the latest uh, uh, scandals in Jerusalem. See. Even his brothers were telling him, you know, you're not getting anywhere in your ministry here in Galilee. You've got to go up to Jerusalem. You've got to hit big time. That's why they were trying to promote him to do that there in John chapter 7. So this is part of the uh, context for on the same occasion. 
They are finding this time to be opportune. So Jesus is talking about current events. He's also talking about um, the idea of reconciliation, the idea of handling our affairs ourselves and not being dependent on government or courts or legal proceedings. See, while he talks about uh, in verse 57, why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going before your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him. In other words, settle out of court. Let's handle things ourselves, in particular, as our stewardship responsibilities demand. In the body of Christ, in the outworking of a local church, uh, we have no business going to a court, going to uh, a legislature, going to an executive branch, going to any secular government agency to solve our issues. They don't have jurisdiction over our issues. This is our realm in our stewardship and in the operation of this lampstand, of this local church. Of course, in their stewardship, it was... Uh, Different, but still the principle is the same. For matters of their stewardship, they are not subject to Caesar. Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So he spoke of current events. He spoke of um, of being uh, apart from politics, being outside of politics, handling things ourselves. And on those two uh, aspects of, of what he was speaking there, they then say, hey, this is our chance now to interject something. This is our chance now to start uh, to manipulate something here. So on this is the occasion. Certain ones, not all of them, but certain ones. There were some present who reported to him. There's always someone that wants to tell a story. All right. When we find out now here, A, this occasion was opportune. It was opportune for them. The word opportune is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's actually very opportune that we have the concept here. We have the concept elsewhere. This uh, occasion was opportune. You ever wonder about the timing of certain things? Our God is a God of timing. Interestingly enough, so too is the adversary. The adversary is a God of timing. He's not uh, foolish in the things that he does. He's very clever in the way that he manipulates certain things. And one of his tactics, of course, is to rush some things through on a crisis basis where believers don't have time to stop, think things through, faith rest it, claim the promises, seek the Lord's will in prayer, and come to a biblical decision about something. It's always uh, a tactic of the adversary to try to bring people into a fluster where they act out of, uh, out of an emotion or they act out of uh, anything but divine viewpoint. See. So what is the aspect of an opportune time? Well, we've encountered it already a couple of times. Luke 4.13, in his dealings with uh, Christ, the devil understood that he lost in Luke chapter 4. He lost in the wilderness temptations. He, went, he was 0 for 3, terrible batting average, of course, <laughs> right? Uh, 0 for 3, you're batting 0, 0, 0. Okay, that's, that's awful. It's, uh, you know, three strikes and you're out. Christ passed the uh, wilderness temptation here. And yet, you know, he passes the, uh, the, uh, 
food test, and he passes the glory test, the pride test, and the physical danger test, all these things. And yet, I think it's a key verse in Luke 4.13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he gave up and never tried again. Is that what it says? No. It says he left him until an opportune time. He left him until an opportune time. Understand that. The devil understands timing. And he does not give up. If you, if you pass a test today, great. But don't get prideful. Because you can fail the very same test tomorrow or the next day, the next week, under other circumstances, with different timing. And you may notice that. You may also fail a test in different um degrees later on in your growth you may uh, i've encountered some folks myself even i've made comment i've been discouraged over tests that i failed that i had passed earlier in my christian walk i thought well why did i fail that that was stupid i passed it you know the, the first three times i was tempted with such and such or whatever right well see the difference is though is that the older you become the more you obtain the more accountable you are and also the less of a hedge that's about you. And the, the uh, you know, when you're younger, the father hedges you about. There's that hedge of protection. And, and there may be circumstances that he does not permit. And so you pass a test as a babe. You pass a test as an adolescent. And yet, uh, circumstances are different the older you are. And he expects more of you. See, you know, what happens to your bowling average after the uh, the, the, the bumpers are removed? You know what I'm talking about? The gutter bumpers that little kids get? Okay, Maybe you haven't been bowling in a long time. But uh, nowadays, if you go bowling in a modern bowling alley, they've got these automated bumpers that fill in the, the, uh, the gutter. You know, the gutters on the left and right of your bowling lane. You cannot gutter ball with, when the bumpers are lifted up there. So, you know, a little kid can just chunk a ball down the lane and it can bounce left and right and left and right and left and right and, and you know, knock down a few pins at the end. Come, come away with, you know, whatever score he comes away with. Well, you get to a certain age and then they drop the, the bumpers and now you're on your own and you start scoring some zeros in some of those frames, right? Well, think about your own testing. And the father says, all right, now, I expect more out of you. I expect more out of you. Some of the, you know, the gloves are off, the gutters are dropped. The, you know, you, you ought to be living the word. So the devil leaves him here for an opportune time, and, and he faced testing throughout his ministry. He faced testing, I think the pinnacle of it was in Gethsemane, the night before the, the arrest, you know, where he was sweating great drops of blood. You know the adversary was there, and the, the, the text doesn't spell it out as, as clearly maybe as we'd like. And I, I did enjoy it in the, in the Mel Gibson film where he portrayed the serpent there and how Jesus stomped on him. Uh, that was kind of cool, you know, for a Hollywood uh, interpolation of, of what might have happened there and, you know, get snooty or take issue with that. I think the adversary was there. He was definitely there in the temptations and the thoughts and, the, and that's why Christ wanted backup in getting uh, his closest apostles praying with him there. All right, that's Luke. Over to John 7, you'll note. There are different opportune times, in particularly contrasted between believers and unbelievers. 
And remember, in this conflict, his brothers are still unbelievers. Verse 5 says not even his brothers were believing in him. So James and Jude and Simeon and these guys, they were not saved yet. I believe they get saved after the resurrection, and they're believers in the upper room. When he appears with 120 there in the upper room, they're saved at that point. But they're not saved at the cross. That's why he entrusts Mary's care to John instead of his brothers. The brothers should be taken care of. They're, you know, a son should be taken care of his mom. But since they're unbelievers, Jesus is not going to entrust Mary to his unbelieving brother's care. Instead, he hands them off to his cousin John. And there's a believer and an apostle and a, a man with doctrine that has capacity to care for the, the widowed mother there. Well, they're not saved. Quite clearly, they're not saved. And it's in that. This is the passage I mentioned a little bit ago where uh, they were trying to say, you know, get out of here. In verse 3, leave here. Go up to Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you're doing. In other words, this stage, this is too small for you. Galilee is too secluded. Too, you've got to get to Jerusalem. You've got to hit big time. It's where the temple is. It's where the Sanhedrin is. That's where, you know, anybody that is anybody is going to be there. You know, like telling an actor, you've got to get to... You know, you've got to quit with these venues. You've got to get to Broadway, you know, if they're on stage. You've got to get to Hollywood if you're, uh, you know, on screen. You know, you keep doing these little, you know, the, the, the Georgetown Community Theater. Uh, you know, great, you know, uh, enjoyable uh, stage productions up there or whatever. But you're not going to get the, the acclaim and the exposure and the glamour and the glory until you hit Broadway, see. Not to insult any particular theater in town, just... Happens to be the last place I saw was in Georgetown. All right. So um, anyway, they're telling him, you've got to get up there. You've got to make a big splash. For no one does anything in secret, verse 4, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. <laughs> the basic flaw to their logic, though, is that they, they assume that Jesus was all about self-promotion. That Jesus that had no other priority than to uh, magnify his name. To build his ministry, see. It's wild how unbelievers think they know what this church is all about or what we're doing here or what, you know, we're, we're, you know family member on Sharon's side of the family just stunned. You know, uh, we're at a family event and they're grabbing people saying, hey, hey, you need to go to his church. You need to go to his church. You need to go to his church. And I say, will you, will you quit that? <laughs> you know, I'm not up, but that's not what I'm about. And he, what are you talking about? You, you want people to go to your church? That's not the primary focus. I mean, if they want to come, great. We love visitors. But my purpose in life is not to just grab, you know, 600,000 people out of Austin and cram them into a building on Woodrow Avenue. It's not why we're here. So anyway, unbelievers have these priorities as to everyone wants to tell you what you need to do in your ministry. How about that? Well, they're not even saved is the problem there in verse 5. And his statement to them in verse 6 is what I'm driving at because it's, the point we're making here from today's message. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Always opportune. And it's a telling statement. Because as unbelievers, they are uh, acclimated to their cosmos system in which they live. See, we're the ones that are fish out of water. We're the ones that are uh, aliens and strangers. But they, they live in this world and for this world. They are of this world. And so um, it really makes for an interesting uh, 
an interesting commentary. Now, the idea of always there, I think we also want to study it in terms of what was happening in this dispensation, in this age. The age of the incarnation was an age when the Father was allowing for Satan to have his, his uh, free hand in, in afflicting the Christ, up to and including the crucifixion. Uh, I think we need to recognize when the opportune time has been given over. When has a community been given over? When has a nation been given over? When is God giving a nation over to the opportune time of the cosmos system for our own uh, discipline? See, and uh, and so you wonder when you've got you know the rise and fall of different. Uh, political fortunes and different uh, deals, and, and, and some people get really frustrated over it. Well, don't. Father's still in charge, right? There's not a single king that's ever taken a throne, not a single president that's ever taken office outside of God's sovereignty, according to Daniel chapter 2. And uh, if you want to argue that, you're not fighting me, you're fighting Daniel chapter 2. All right, which is, of course, God-breathed, inspired. It's eternal. It's been around for ages. It's going to be around long after we're gone. So, <laughs> good, you know, have fun arguing with that. So, but this occasion was an opportune time for then. Getting back to Luke 13 now. It was on this occasion, at this opportune time, that certain ones who were present, the idea that they weren't disciples, they weren't followers, they weren't, uh, they just happened to be present here at this time, and this was their opportune time to now try to turn Jesus into a political crusader, to get Jesus to respond, react, or somehow address a political atrocity. Pilate just massacred some Galileans. What was Jesus? It was Galilean, right? And in a lot of the cases, the, uh, the the scribes and the Pharisees were very uh, they, they 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 were dismissive of Jesus. They mocked him. You know, who is this rabble? Who is this Galilean? Who are these fishermen? Who are these nobodies? Where do they come from? What school do they go to? Right? And they uh, they were so um, dismissive and scornful of Jesus for being this Galilean. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, for example? And the pride of the Judeans and the Jerusalemites, we've seen again and again and again, they were the uh, center of God's plan as far as they were concerned. They were God's plan as far as they were concerned. And so to take an occasion where, you know what, Pilate massacred some Galileans. I think that might uh, stir up some sympathy. I think that might cause a, uh, a reaction. I think that might... And, and see, the objective, of course... I don't care about the Galileans. I don't give a hoot about the Galileans. But if they can distract Jesus from his teaching, now that's certainly something they want to stop because he's gathering too many followers and he's, he's exposing the Pharisees for the frauds that they are. So what better way to keep him from getting involved in ministry or, or having more effective ministry than to get him sidetracked into some kind of political cause? All right, so this is the event here. Now, the history on this is interesting. They reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And the, clearly the, um, the noun that's attached to the possessive here, the, the thusia, the, the sacrifices were the Galileans' sacrifices. In other words, they were bringing the sacrifices, uh, evidently, at Jerusalem either for Passover, for Pentecost, for um, 
tabernacles, or there's no way to know. It may not have been one of the main feasts. It may have simply been a delegation of Galileans that had come. They wanted to bring some free will offerings. They wanted to bring, it doesn't say what the occasion was there. We do know, though, that Pilate put him to death. Pontius Pilate executed some Galileans. And he did so on an occasion of their bringing sacrifices to Jerusalem. See, Pilate was not an authority over Galilee. Pilate was authority over Judea. Uh, Judea was a Roman province that was uh, a, a governorship, whereas uh, Galilee was under Herod. Herod the Tetrarch had responsibility over Galilee. And, and the, after Herod the Great, uh, the Romans had chopped up a lot of that territory and had divided amongst different people. The, the Tetrarchy, as it were, four different parts that Herod the Great's um, territory had been broken down into. And in some cases, like with Herod, he was allowed to reign as a king or a tetrarch. Philip was allowed to reign as a tetrarch. Um, Pilate didn't rule as a tetrarch. He ruled as a governor, see. And he was actually subject to the governor of Syria, a provincial governor. So he had uh, sovereignty, but it was sovereignty that was subject to the governor of Syria's sovereignty as far as that went. All right, The Romans were very clear in their chain of command and very clear in their authority, what they called imperium. And when they had uh, imperium and when they had delegated imperium and uh, if uh, a man was assigned uh, procuratorial authority, imperium, that was one thing. And there were other various degrees of that. And the maximum was the dictatorial imperium that uh, a handful of dictators like Julius Caesar and others, Sulla, uh, others exercised from time to time. So Pilate, in executing some Galileans, in a sense, was overstepping his imperium, all right, in the sense that they were not his subjects. Now, they were in his, they were in his uh, territory when he did it, and so he might have a claim to be able to exercise that, or it may have been better for him to simply apprehend them and send them off to Herod, uh, Herod to the Tetrarch, not Herod the Great, but have Herod the uh, Tetrarch, uh, one was the father, one was the son, have Herod deal with them since they were Galileans. All right. In any event. Uh, this specific event is not recorded elsewhere. And this, I think, has been a problem uh, for some. I don't have a problem. I don't care if it's not recorded elsewhere. It doesn't bother me any. Uh, not recorded elsewhere in Scripture. So, in other words, it's unique to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John did not record it. Nowhere else in Scripture is it recorded. However, it's not inconsistent with Pilate's uh, personality, his character, what we do know about him, what is on the secular historical record. It's not recorded in secular history either. There's a fair amount written um, about this history. In fact, Josephus, one of the greatest historians of, of uh, antiquity, as well as... Um, Luke, I mean, Luke's, uh, the author of, you know, Luke the historian is a tremendous historian. And nothing else in his writings is a problem for us. The Bible haters have tried to nitpick and criticize Luke here and there. And every time they do, they always get uh, flustered because later uh, discoveries of archaeology and, and so forth have uh, only served to strengthen Luke's historical account. Um but be that as it may, there are folks that say, well, it's not found anywhere else in secular history, so it's not reliable. Well, wait a minute, what are we doing? <laughs> are we, you know, it's like the, the six-day account of creation. 
You know, I'm going to trust the biblical record on that. And, and uh, you know, well, you can't find a secular historian who wrote it. Well, no, they weren't alive yet. <laughs> All right. I, I actually uh, view this as the, the, re- the historical record day by day as God inspired Moses to put it down. Or God dis- uh, inspired Adam to put it down. See, anyway, back to the point. Scripture does, point C, whoops, that's not good. I have a better point C. Oh, my goodness. Okay, here's what point C should say. Yep, that's a bad point C there. Uh, Here's what point C should say. Scripture does record a general antagonism between Pilate and Herod. Scripture does record a general antagonism between Pilate and Herod. And this episode may be a part of that. It's certainly consistent with it. And uh, and we're left with a debate, you know, a chicken and egg debate, which came first. Was the antagonism caused by Pilate massacring these Galileans? Or did the, was, the, um, was the hostility between Herod and Pilate, was that already in existence prior to that? Maybe because that hostility was there, Pilate said, I'm sick of these Galileans. I'm sick to death of these jerks that Herod doesn't keep a, a firm hand on. And because of the hostility, he put these Galileans to death. Say, we don't know. Scripture on this. So again, point C, since I don't have it on the screen, I'll reread it. Scripture records a general antagonism between Pilate and Herod. And your scripture reference is Luke 23, 12. Luke 23, 12. In fact, the one thing that kind of patched things up between Pilate and Herod, you want to know what it was? It was the, the trial of Jesus. The trial of Jesus helped them to mend their fences. Uh, Pilate... Um, Pilate didn't want to put Jesus to death. In fact, Pilate's wife, Mrs. Pilate, was really nagging on him. And she had been having nightmares. She wasn't sleeping well at night. She said, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. And so Pilate's like, what am I going to do? And he washed his hands. He said, I find no guilt in him. And uh, he knew the whole thing was trumped up. He knew that the religious leaders there in the Sanhedrin were a bunch of thugs. And, and he wasn't going to put Jesus to death. And so... Uh, one thing that happened was he found out and he said, well, wait a minute, Jesus is a Galilean. This is my escape clause. I'll send him off to, to Herod. <laughs> Herod can deal with him. So he packed up Jesus and sent him off to Herod. Well, it just so happened Herod was in town. He said, well, perfect. What great timing. Herod's in town. Let's, let's have Herod deal with it. So anyway, this is the backdrop then for Luke 23. And... Um, so uh, when he learned... See, when Pilate heard of it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. <laughs> what a coincidence, right? And, uh, of course, our father sovereignly in charge. There are no coincidences. Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time. He'd been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Man, I've been hearing about this Jesus guy for years now. And what, you know, what, what better entertainment can you get? Especially since Herod was known for his uh, quest, 
he couldn't eat enough, drink enough, party enough. He couldn't. There weren't enough women in the world. There weren't enough. He was uh, he was quite a tyrant. Anyway, so he questioned him at length, but answered him nothing. Remarkably, Jesus had answers for the Gentile, for the Roman, for Pilate. He would answer Pilate. You have said correctly, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And, uh, you know, he speaks about truth. He has answers for Pilate. He will not speak to, to Herod, who is half Jewish. All right. And uh, we're going to do some studies on this, on, on the nature of the Edomians, the Edomites, and the, the, the quasi-Jewish nature of the house of, of Herod. And the, uh, why did he stay silent? Well, the Jewish scriptures said, as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his voice. And there were, there were contexts, there were applications and venues where Jesus does not utter a word. And yet, in the face of Rome, he does. Why was that? Well, stay tuned, because we'll have that coming up when we study the various trials. So, um, anyway, uh, the trial, of course... Herod with the soldiers, treating him with contempt, mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate, remanded back to Pilate's court, saying, okay, I'm, I'm done with him, you can, you can try him. What's interesting, though, in verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. <laughs> this mended their fences. This, this uh, you know, started, uh, was that line in Casablanca? You know, this could be the beginning of a glorious friendship, right? Um, from this day forward, for before they had been enmity, uh, enemies with one another. So that's our one clue in Scripture that uh, the rift between Pilate and uh, and Herod was what it was. We have more clues in secular history in Josephus, which I'll give you under point D. Josephus records ample testimony to Pilate's cruelty and to Pilate's disregard for Jewish religion. Many, many testimonies. I'll give you one in uh, Antiquities. Josephus records ample testimony to Pilate's cruelty and disregard for Jewish religion. Now, Josephus is not God-breathed and inspired, Uh, We don't take everything Josephus says as gospel. It's not absolutely true. However, it is, in the main, generally historically reliable. Very historically reliable. Especially in the areas where he has no reason to lie or embellish. Josephus was Jewish, but a Roman citizen. He was a Pharisee. Uh, from his youth, but he was a general, a Roman general in in the legions of Rome. And my link is supposed to be opening up Josephus Antiquities, but it's not. Okay. We'll do this the hard way. Josephus. He wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, the Wars of the Jews, and we're looking for Book 18, Chapter 3. All right. 
This is worth reading for a couple of different reasons. Um, Pilate, the procurator of Judea, that shows you his Roman authority. Um, he will actually be called to account later on and sent. The governor of Syria is going to dispatch him to Rome where he's going to have to report to uh, Caesar. He's going to have to report to uh, the Senate on, and give an account for his governorship or his procuratorship. The uh, procurator of Judea removed the army from Caesarea that was on the coast up to Jerusalem to take their winter quarters there in order to abolish the Jewish laws. So he introduced Caesar's effigies, which were upon the ensigns, and brought them into the city, whereas our law forbids us the very making of images. In other words, when the legions marched into Jerusalem and on their standard was the image of Caesar, big problem. It's violating uh, the idolatry of the Ten Commandments of the Jewish faith. So, um, on which account, the former procurators were wont to make their entry into the city with such ensigns as had not those ornaments. In other words, they sent soldiers through, but they made sure that their ensigns, their decorations, the flags they marched behind, didn't have the offending uh, images that would cause turmoil. Pilate, of course, didn't, didn't care about any of that. Uh, Pilate was the first who brought these images to Jerusalem and set them up there, which was done without the knowledge of the people because it was done in the nighttime. But as soon as they knew it, they came in multitudes to Caesarea and interceded with Pilate many days that he would remove the images. And uh, when he would not grant their request, because it would tend to, to the injury of Caesar, uh, while they yet pre- uh, preserved in their request, on the sixth day he ordered his soldiers to have their weapons privately while well, he came and sat upon his uh, judgment seat, this is the Bema, you know, the back, backdrop for uh, our own studies on the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, so he infiltrates the crowd with his own undercover soldiers and uh, have their weapons privately while he came and sat upon his judgment seat, which seat was so prepared in the open place of the city that it concealed the army that lay ready to oppress them. And uh, when the Jews petitioned him again, he gave a signal to the soldiers to encompass them round and threatened that their punishment should be no less than immediate death unless they would leave off disturbing him and go their ways home. All right. So this kind of get, this is a, a pattern here to show you the uh, hostility of Pilate to uh, the Jewish people and their customs, their faith and so forth. But they threw themselves upon the ground and laid their necks bare, and they said they would take their death very willingly rather than the wisdom of their laws uh, should be transgressed, upon which Pilate was deeply affected with their form, with their firm resolution to keep their laws inviolable and presently commanded the images to be carried back from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Happy ending, seems to be. Next Next element. But Pilate undertook to bring a current of water to Jerusalem and did it with the sacred money. Uh, Romans were great at building aqueducts and channeling water and transporting water in various places where it was needed. And in order to fund it, uh, well, you got all that gold sitting there in the temple, right? Well, <laughs> but see, to the Jews, that gold belongs to Yahweh. That's, that's the temple's gold. That's not Caesar's gold. So uh, he did it with the sacred money and derived the origin of the stream from the distance of 200 furlongs. However, the Jews were not pleased with what had been done about this water, and many ten thousands of the people got together, made a clamor against him, and insisted that he should leave off that design. Some of them also used reproaches and abused the man, as crowds of great people uh, usually do. So he habited a great number of his soldiers in their habit. In other words, 
disguise them in their clothing. Okay, this uh, translation of Josephus goes back uh, the early 1900s, so it's it's got uh, terms and words we don't use anymore. Um, they carried daggers under their garments and sent them to a place where they might surround them. So he bade the Jews uh, himself go away. Uh, but, the, but they, boldly casting reproaches upon him, he gave the soldiers that signal which had been beforehand agreed upon, who laid upon them such greater blows than Pilate had commanded them, and equally punished those that were tumultuous and those that were not, nor did they spare them in the least. And since the people were unarmed, they were caught by men uh, prepared for what they were about. There was a great number of them slain by this means, and others of them ran away wounded, and uh, thus an end was put to the sedition. All right. So anyway, this these two stories then give you a picture for how um, how Pilate liked to operate. All right. He didn't tolerate nonsense or sedition. He was brutal. He loved to infiltrate people uh, out of uniform and disguised and with hidden weapons and and bring about massacres before a civilian audience would know what was going on. The very next section after that, too, since we have some time this morning, um, is one of the most hotly debated uh, sections of Josephus. In fact, Bible haters, Christ haters, usually will deny that it's legitimate. They claim that it was interpolated in later centuries by Christians to try to give evidence for Christianity. Problem with that is that there's no manuscript evidence for that, and it's much, uh, I, I think there's stronger evidence to say no, it's legitimate. It was written by Josephus in the first century. There was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal man amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Anyway, this is a very famous passage of Josephus that critics and skeptics deny is original, that it must have been inserted in later centuries. You know, the, that nefarious Roman church and all their conspiracies, you know, inserted this in Josephus's text. In any event, it is uh, remarkable as a Gentile, as a Jewish, unbelieving, hostile witness to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, giving secular history's uh, agreement that uh, indeed Jesus Christ was crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate. Point E. A Roman massacre of Galileans is surely a cause that a devout son of David would rally behind. This is their thinking. This is their thinking. A Roman massacre of Galileans is surely a cause that a devout son of David would rally behind. You might also say a devout son of David with a Galilean upbringing with a Galilean upbringing, would rally behind. Don't overlook that component to it. Remember, there were a variety of movements in Christ's ministry where uh, popular opinion was ready to rush off and put him on a throne. 
They wanted to make him king. After he fed the 5,000, for example. Oh, they were excited. Make him king. You bet. Here's a king that can feed us every day. Wow. What a great king, you know. Um, of course, they're not humble under the revelation of Scripture. They're not, uh, they're not at all positive to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They have no interest in listening to the prophetic messages that Jesus was speaking. They just very selfishly wanted to have their bellies full. And yeah, this would be a really cool king. Somebody that can give us bread every day. You know, imagine that. What amazing superpowers. Wouldn't that be great? See, and, uh, you know, you know, it'd be like a, a mayor that could promise a, a home delivery of, of free food every single day of the year. You know, and, and you know, if there was such a thing, a mayor who could make good on that, uh, he'd probably gain quite a few votes, right? I mean, if you're going to have front door delivery of three meals a day, you know, 21 meals a week, and you don't have to pay for it, and there it is. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? When you get certain population centers that are um, of that mentality, of that welfare state government providing mentality. In any event, Jesus is not going to take their bait. Jesus is not. And he knows what's on their heart. Interesting, when he speaks to them, he actually speaks to their attitude and to their thinking. And this is what we have to understand, because I think, I'll be the first to admit it, from time to time, and maybe more frequently than we'd like, we have the same thinking. We develop attitudes that some sins are worse than other sins. We develop an attitude that of, they had it coming. They had it coming. They got what they deserved. God sure got them, didn't they? Didn't he? Oh, I'm glad I'm better than they are. Okay? And I'm going to expand upon this a little bit. We, we have seven minutes remaining today, but next week we're going to expand this a little bit because notice with me, I think this is so important. They reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And you want to note, he doesn't say a word about Pilate. Doesn't say anything about Pilate. He turns it back to them and their attitude and their need for repentance. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose? It's a thinking term. It's an evaluation term. It's a term that means that you have um, considered and weighed and evaluated and you've come to a value judgment. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? He's not asking about the right or wrong of it. He's not agreeing with them that Pilate did a terrible thing. He's not disagreeing, saying, you know, uh, Pilate had every right to do what he did. He wasn't addressing the merits of the political atrocity. He was not addressing the merits of the political atrocity at all. See, you know, people today, they want to debate. 
Uh, you know, do the people have a right to protest their government? Do they have the right? Does the, does the government have the right to maintain order in their, in their capital city? When, does a government have right to crush rebellion? Do people have a right to rebel? Who's right? Let's discuss the merits of these things, okay? Uh, do they have a, do they have in their constitution enshrined a right to petition the government for a redress of grievances? But we do. <laughs> it's in our constitution. Does everybody have the same constitution? Anyway, I'm not going to, you know, debate blah, 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 you know, because uh, a government will always find their own rationale for the exercise of their own power, obviously. You know, rebellion is never illegal in the first person. Which is our rebellion. It's only their rebellion that it's illegal. All right. Jesus is not addressing the rebellion. He's not addressing the massacre. He's not addressing the political atrocity. He's not defending Pilate. He's not attacking Pilate. He's addressing their attitude behind why it is they found this opportunity to address a political question before him. He has just taught a lengthy series with ten emphases. They don't want to have anything to do with any of that. They just want him to take issue with this massacre. And so he addresses their attitude. Do you suppose? And then he answers it in verse 3. I tell you no. He answers with the correct answer, which, by the way, is at odds with their attitude. What was their attitude? When he says, I tell you no, their answer was the other way, wasn't it? They were, yeah. Boy, those Galileans. <laughs> okay. Because who are these guys? They're not Galileans, right? He's in, this is the Perean and Judean ministry. He's headed towards Jerusalem. Okay. And let's face it. Um, unless you're a Galilean, you look down on the Galileans. Right? I mean, it's kind of like this country. you know. Unless you're from Kentucky, let's face it, Kentucky's fair game. We can criticize Kentucky, you know, from now till dinner and later. You know, we can, those backward country, bumpkin, hicks, kind of, no, you know, what do they know? Right? Or, uh, you know, Arkansas or whatever. You know, pick your backwater part of the country and mock them for being, uh, you know, the unsophisticated country bumpkin rubes that they are. Right? That was Galilee in the ancient world. Galilee was ancient Kentucky. It's not so fun anymore. It used to be a lot more fun when we had Gary here. Gary grew up in Kentucky. He was <laughs> born in New York, but his childhood and teenage years were in Kentucky. So, And he agreed with me, too, by the way. That's, that's the way Kentucky was. You know, kind of marry your sister kind of place. I don't know. Now, I'm going to get emails because there's going to be people. I'm going to get emails from people listening to the MP3 file from Kentucky. And uh, that's all right. If they're sophisticated enough to listen to MP3s and send emails, then they're obviously not the crowd I'm talking about. But see, this is what we deal with. We talk about stereotypes. We talk about uh, reputations and, and so forth. That was the reputation of Galilee. Now, was it true? Obviously not. Clearly not in Jesus' case, not in the disciples' case. These men were powerful in the Scriptures. They weren't uh, country bumpkin idiots. They knew the Word of God. They preached the Word of God. You know, I mean, 
I'd have a hard time finding 12 men that had more impact in world history, right, than Jesus Christ and these Galilean fishermen. 13 men if you count Matthias. Anyway. So uh, he's not going to... But see, this is their attitude. He, he challenges them on their attitude. He corrects them on their attitude. And then he demands they have to have a change of thinking or they themselves are faced with destruction. You will also likewise perish. That's a strong word. You know, not that uh, a, a Roman governor is going to put you to death. Not that a tower is going to fall on you. That's the second story. Um, this is actually important enough. He tells it twice. He uses their story of Pilate and the massacre. And then he adds his own story about this tower that falls down. You know, the tower in Siloam that fell. And killed, uh, there's 18 that died and when his tower fell down. Okay. That wasn't their story. That was his story. And yet, they had an attitude issue there too. And he knew all about it. See, under prophetic inspiration, he was able to expose both of these illustrations for them. One they brought up and one he brought up. But the message is still the same. Verse 3 is identical to verse 5. Unless you repent. The condition of perishing is a given. And the only way to avoid that is repentance on their part. So, next week we'll come back and look at that. And there are main points two, three, and four we need to expand upon. So we've covered main point one now, subpoints A, B, C, D, E. I'll also uh, fix my C between now and next week. And then. Uh, Main point two has an A, B, C. Main point three is all by itself. Main point four has an A and a B, although I might expand point three before we get there. Haven't decided yet. Anyway, Lord willing, rapture pending. We have uh, all the time in the world between now and the rapture, right? <laughs> so uh, it is what it is. Thank you, Father, for this day, for our time together, for uh, restoring uh, my health, my voice, the ability to teach. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for a body of believers that's hungry for teaching. Pray for those that could not be here, Father. Uh, I, I'm, I understand Fallon has what I had last week, and that's no fun. So, Father, restore that as it runs its course. But, Father, uh, we have fallen bodies in a fallen world, and that's what it is. And I thank you that uh, the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. Thank you, Father, that the, uh, the course of uh, your plan is not dependent upon our strength, our ability, our humanity to bring these things about. Thank you, Father, that you work through us in spite of our weaknesses for the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.